The Defense Department has pinned its hopes of someday putting artificial intelligence tools in the hands of warfighters to help them make data-driven decisions on the battlefield. But Ranjeev Me Too, the head of the Naval Research Lab's Information Management and Decision Architectures branch, says the AI algorithms of today are starved for reliable training data to make informed decisions in the real world. He tells Federal News Network's Jory Heckman what he sees as the most promising use cases of AI the lab is working on. I think generally the most promising and successful, I would say, use cases have been where you have a lot of data, where you can train these AI-based approaches that are very data-starved to be able to train them and then use them. So things like uh, vision, looking at uh, object identification and pictures, you can start to look at how that might carry over to videos and things like that. But the whole idea is that you have lots and lots of data and label data in some cases, many cases I would say, that you can use to train these kinds of uh, AI-based approaches, specifically convolutional neural networks. Where I think they tend to not do as well is when the data is noisy or is sparse, then you can't really have sufficient data to train these networks and your prediction accuracy really kind of falls down. It's not very high and the main challenges really become it's kind of an art right now to understand these networks and how to optimize them and build them. So. Um, you know, it's not really clear how much data is needed under what scenarios for what kinds of problems yet. And I think it's kind of emerging. I think there's a lot of research going on, but I think fundamentally there's still a lot more research that needs to be done in the relationship between data and training and what the right trade-offs are for the different kinds of problems. There's actually one use case that I wanted to get more of your thoughts on. What you described as using AI or machine learning to, I guess, go through exit surveys of employees and get a better sense of, I believe the word you used was predictors of when employees might feel like they are uh, in some way dissatisfied or might feel like leaving their jobs. Would you be able to go into a little bit more detail of what that looks like, just if you could shed some more light on that? It's an area we haven't really gone down too far in the past. These are just ideas we have been thinking about sort of conceptually. How would we take AI and the tools that it might offer to help us, let's say, uh, hire, retain, retrain, all these things that you want to do to have a good workforce for what your business is? You know, the, the interesting thing is I think industry is using a lot of these tools now. For example, they will use AI-based approaches to filter through applications, conduct basically interviews with virtual assistants. And I think we should be looking at that and looking at what's successful, what's working in industry and what isn't, and figuring out how we can use those techniques for the DOD. A simple example I would say is we don't want to get to a point where an employee is leaving and then trying to ask that employee, well, why is he or she leaving? Because at that point, it's too late. So rather than do exit surveys, I think we have an opportunity to query employees through their professional career and kind of understand what's bothering them, what they like, what they don't like, and kind of get a sense of their environment, their culture, and their climate, basically, in the environment, and look at whether that climate is providing the tangible products of the organization. For example, NRL, it could be the amount of publications we produce, the patents. So you can start to look at the correlation between the climate and the products, and there's a learning problem right there. 
You can see what kinds of things actually improve the climate and the productivity and what things tend to make it decline. And you can fix those along the way to make sure that your employees are happy, they're growing, and you can see that by the tangible outcomes they produce as opposed to kind of learning it at the end when they're exiting and it's too late to do anything to bring them back or keep them on. I think these are things we ought to be looking at. Again, privacy is going to be a big issue because with all of this data about people, you have to understand how to protect all of the data. And I think that's a critical piece to having employees engage with you, with the systems, the IT systems that collect the data to provide the information necessary for AI to learn all of these things. So what I'm hearing is more of a continuous evaluation of these employees rather than, I guess, being blindsided at the end that they're leaving and, and not being aware that that was a, really a problem for them. Right. No, I, I, I think that's totally accurate because we do live in a data-intense environment. And I think whether you're collecting data from sensors in the field or humans, which are essentially sensors too, you know, there's a way to mine it and look for patterns and make use of it for the agency's objectives and goals. So definitely, I think there's an opportunity and we should be learning what industry is doing and taking that and using it as appropriate in, in the federal government. It's interesting that you bring up the private sector, and that really segues into my next question. Government-wide, there's been more of a push to roll out AI and help it improve the way that federal employees do their jobs. But I think there's been a general recognition that, you know, across the government, they are a little bit behind the curve compared to the private sector. And so my question for you is, you know, what do you see as some of these hurdles or barriers to AI adoption in the federal government? I think one perhaps major issue would be the fact that the government is large. We have lots and lots of different networks, different kinds of IT systems, perhaps different classification levels on which systems operate. And I think to get a uniform adoption, it's hard, federal government-wide. As opposed to industry, you have specific niches, if you will. They control their data. You know, They know exactly what they want. They have an acquisition process that's probably streamlined, and they can put things into production faster. I think there are just some roadblocks that the DOD has to overcome with not only the acquisition process of fielding these kinds of systems, but how do they work across different organizations when the different organizations themselves could be very different from an IT perspective and the networks they ride on and those kinds of policy issues. So I think that's probably a, a big, big barrier, but I think you will see adoption in specific areas within the federal government. So maybe in certain uh, areas like treasury, defense, but I think, you know, there's an adoption process. There's also things you have to worry about in terms of trust. Can these systems be used in a way that people that are using them actually trust them? They know what how they're working. So all of this also touches on explainability and, and other things. I just think that the scale at which the federal government is operating and the diversity of the systems, trying to get a uniform system, I think, is a challenge. But I think you will see adoption at smaller scales that might provide some best practices or a way to guide sort of future investment across other parts of government. We've spoken quite a bit about the, the challenges with the data and just uh, making sure there's enough good labeled data out there to run these AI algorithms on. How do you see that improve in the years ahead? I, I realize there is a, a federal data strategy, one-year action plan out now, and I think that gives some solutions, but how do you see this getting better? 
with data? That that's a very very hard question to answer. But um, I think it becomes an issue of uh, control and ownership of data. That's one way to look at it. You know, if you can control your data and curate it and manage it and know how it's flowing down the information processing pipeline, I think you're in a better position to use that and have a measure of quality on it to be able to train any kind of algorithm. In defense, maybe not, because we're all working across joint operations. We don't control our own data. We're interfacing with systems that are providing us data that we don't necessarily own. We might just be ingesters of data. So I think from that perspective, it gets very, very difficult to understand that lineage of data. Where did it come from? Who generated it? And what processes executed on that data before it got to you? I think it's really an issue of control management that the less control and management you have over data, you don't really know how it kind of fused together, was integrated to give you that piece to train. I think data fusion is a big problem in this whole thing. And one thing I've really started to think about for my research, uh, again, this is very conceptual in nature, is at the end, machine learning is sort of the downstream processes in the information processing pipeline. Data fusion is probably more of an upstream process where you have to fuse the data and come up with some features to train an algorithm. So I think you have to look at this holistically, that it's not just a, a machine learning problem, but how you get the data, integrate it, fuse it, combine it with other data sets, heterogeneous data sets to form the features, the data features that you need to train the algorithms. I think there's a there's a holistic approach that we ought to be really thinking about uh, to make things usable. And, and I think that also a little bit of value to understanding the explainability problem. I think there there's so many interconnected themes going on here. You can't understand one theme like explainability or data in isolation, I think they all have implications with each other, and they all affect each other. That's Ranjeev Too, the head of the Naval Research Lab's Information Management and Decision Architectures branch, talking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. You can subscribe to the Federal Drive on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 